Welcome to Making of Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today, we are going to be talking about the histories of two different islands, Britain and Japan, and we're going to use those to look at our future. But first, we're going to give some background. One of the big stories before the time period that I'm interested in is stability after chaos. So there's a number of European and worldwide events that cause a breakdown of uh, political stability. In Europe, you have the Black Death, which destroys, I think, like a third of the entire population and just upends uh, the entire order of things. Uh, And around the world in the 17th century, you have what's called the Little Ice Age, which is a drop in temperatures in most places that some scholars say uh, causes a bunch of moments of political instability, like the British Civil War and uh, the shift from the Ming to the Qing in China, and then a bunch of other different uh, uh, political crises that they argue are caused by uh, lower temperatures and thus shittier agriculture. But after these catastrophic events happened, slowly and slowly and slowly, societies rebuilt themselves. Things got bigger. States got more powerful. Administration became more complicated. Populations increased. Markets expanded. Just imagine a graph that you might read in The Economist that has all of these human development indicators, and they would all be on the slow way up. Uh, Maybe not height, but you might get increases in literacy, increases in calories eaten, etc. This is called by uh, scholars uh, after E.A. Wrigley, the advanced organic economies. They are advanced because they're large and complicated, but they are organic because they run off of energy from organisms, from the sun, from, you know, from oxen and people and you know, wheat. Part of the story of these advanced organic economies is that they push intense human development into areas and environments that beforehand were not as intensively worked. And we are going to look at the case of Britain and Japan to see two different strategies about how to deal with these problems. But before we explain this, there's one more little bit of theory to understand that will make everything make sense. And that's what happens to populations when they grow. Now, the common sense view, the view that your professors in undergrad probably tried to make you remember if you ever took a history class, uh, comes from the 19th century curate and political economist Thomas Malthus. Malthus is the person who gives us the uh, uh, word Malthusian that you might hear people throwing around a lot. So you can sum up the Malthusian view pretty simply. Life tends towards poverty. Uh, Malthus is really like the most dismal person of all of the dismal uh, political economists. The argument basically goes like this. As people get better off, they have more kids. So the next generation, there's more people who are living off of the same amount of resources. So 
people get poorer. In the absence of checks like disease and abstinence or war, the population will grow until everybody is so poor that the population will no longer grow. This means that poverty is completely inevitable, struggle is completely inevitable, and any individual attempt to ameliorate poverty, say by giving out food or, you know, helping people, is just in the long run doomed to failure because all it will do is lead to an increase in the population population and an increase on the stress of uh, that humans put on the environment. Technically, the insight is that while population increases geometrically, that is, it increases by powers, like by powers of two or powers of three, food only increases linearly, that is, by multiplying it. So over the long run, population will always outstrip food. Now, the other theory comes from Esther Bozrup, who argues that when population increases, people respond by working harder and finding new solutions. So you can imagine this happening in a bunch of different ways. So uh, if you have a higher population, people might move onto more ma marginal farmland that is more difficult to farm. And uh, so this, through greater uh, intensity of farming increases the food more than the Malthusian model will suggest. But there's a lot more than just moving to marginal farmland. People can uh, use new kinds of farming practices like more intensive weeding uh, that increase output per acre but demand more effort. Uh, people can spend more time fertilizing or shifting to crash ca cash crops that they can exchange on the market, or they can innovate and find new ways out of the solution. In Bozrip's model, when put up against environmental constraints, there is a tendency for people to push beyond, to develop the frontier, to work harder, to try new things, to put women to the workforce, to invent, to create. It's the idea that we have now of this endlessly creative economy that will always overcome constraints. And so there's kind of a big question for environmentally minded people. Are we in a long-term Malthusian moment, or are we in a long-term Bozruppian moment? Are we going to face the environmental constraints on our populations and societies, or are we simply and naturally and inevitably going to innovate our way out of it? Well, to get some historical clarification on this, let's look at two different islands in the early modern period. First, we'll take Britain. The story here should be familiar by now if you've been listening. So after the civil wars of the 17th century, England, Wales, and Scotland became relatively stable. I mean, there were, you know, political problems and the odd couple of uprisings, but things were settled enough that the population could grow. And grow it did. Population exploded, especially urban population. And this population increasingly was not working on the land. They were increasingly working in cities in manufacturing and services. But as this population was increasing, they hit a bunch of environmental constraints. Uh, so first, people had to work this land harder to spend more energy doing intensive agriculture like triennial crop rotation, marling, and so on to actually feed the population. But it wasn't just food. Britain can get really cold in the winter, and there was a shortage of trees because Britain is an island and there's just not, you know, vast forests everywhere. 
Uh, furthermore, Britain is an island and is under threat from the gigantic empires like France that are sitting just a couple of miles off of its shore. And so it needed to make a strong navy. And what is navy made out of? Well, navies are made out of wood, which are made out of trees. And so there's an intense competition between uh, wood that's necessary for shipbuilding and wood that, that's necessary for heating. Uh, take, for example, you know, imagine one of those big clipper ships that you see in, like, Master and Commander movies. They have these gigantic masts. Well, each mast is a fir tree that takes over a hundred years to grow. So you can see that there's, in the end, a very intense competition for wood. So there's two kinds of solution that Britain came up with to deal with constraints on wood and food. Coal and colonization. Britain had easily accessible coal reserves that could be shipped around the country because uh, it is an island and has a really uh, large uh, uh, surface area to area ratio. Now, coal helped take the pressure off trees for heating. Uh, most people in London by the 17th century were heating their houses with coal and not wood because it was significantly cheaper. And because there was already a market for coal in the 18th century, this allowed for the development of the capital and energy intensive way of making things that we call the Industrial Revolution. The second solution is colonization, because colonization helps take off the demographic and food pressure. When population gets too big, people don't need to starve to death, they need to hop into boats and go across the water and go to the frontier, to America, to India, to places with lower population densities where people can farm less intensively. And not only did America take care of the crowds, but America also provided what Ken Pomerantz calls ghost acres. These are uh, places of agricultural activity that are kind of extra to Britain. So you're able to get stuff like cotton and sugar and coffee while also uh, getting stuff like wheat and, and meat. The other example of an island facing these kinds of constraints is Japan. Japan in the early modern period is pretty similar to Britain. It is also an island archipelago that's oriented north to south. It's also off of the coast of a powerful continental neighbor. Uh, it's also ravaged by civil war and uh, slowly uh, develops a, a, a period of political stability, rising populations, and a new kind of culture. But this new kind of culture is an incredibly different path to what Britain took. Japan, like Britain, turned to intensive agriculture. But whereas Britain kicked off most of the people off the land to go to the cities, in Japan, you got increasingly smaller plots of land that were farmed by independent families. I forget the exact number, but I think that the average uh, uh, allotment of land in a, a Japanese farm is something like half an acre, which is just insane. To make that half an acre get enough food, Japanese farmers had to work incredibly hard. They worked every day, backbreaking, sweaty labor to uh, 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 participate in this very intensive wet rice agriculture that managed to make enough food for the Japanese population to survive. Um, and Japanese families also reacted by tightening their belts. Unlike in Britain, they were not going wild for tropical groceries like coffee and sugar and, and tobacco and stuff. 
Instead, they had a culture of asceticism, of constraint, of restraint, of not having gigantic meals and wearing thousands of different clothes. An example of this is that whereas in Britain people heated their entire homes through massive stoves, in Japan the tendency was for people to carry through their homes a little charcoal brazier that, you know, didn't use as much energy. So what counts for this difference. How do we explain the uh, extensive development of Britain where people use coal and colonies to get over the Malthusian trap or the intensive development of Japan where people tighten their belts and work really, really hard? Well, in Japan, you had intense and maybe even authoritarian state control. Um, you can see this most clearly in the reason why Japan wasn't going crazy for coffee. In the 17th century, Japan cut off most contact with the outside world. Japanese people couldn't leave, and it was really, really hard for overseas traders to get to Japan. The Dutch, for instance, could only trade in Japan on a single island called Dejima in the Bay of, of Nagasaki. And even in that, when they're going outside, they had to dress up funnily, and all of their trade was heavily, heavily, heavily regulated. Um, another example is in fish stocks. So uh, as, as agriculture grew more intensive, Japanese people increasingly turned towards the sea to get fish to eat. But these fish stocks were considered the property of local lords, and so access to them was heavily regulated by these same lords so that the fish stocks could survive. Same thing with forestry. Forestry was incredibly highly regulated. You couldn't just go out and cut trees. There was a massive, massive uh, system of, of, of checks to make sure that people didn't strip the forests. And people's personal lives were heavily regulated. There were very low birth rates, which exist a lot of contraception and abstinence and infanticide. People didn't eat as much. People didn't have as many or as nice clothes and things. Britain, on the other hand, people had this idea of personal liberty, and this idea of personal liberty is nowhere better more expressed than the frontiersmen, these bleeding edges of colonization who go out to the area beyond state control and just live. They live, you know, what's what's the idea in America, that, that, that motto? Live free or die. Well, this is the British colonial motto. Live free or die. You have freeborn Englishmen who are going out and they are going to make their way and get rich. You can see this in uh, some of the models of what we see as working class ideals. We have the, mo the, the, the image of the cornucopia, of this endless horn that is overfilling with wonderful food that will always be there. You have ideas of Big Rock Candy Mountain, this dreamland where you don't have to work and you can drink to your heart's content. Or in, in, in the 17th century, you have the 17th century version of Big Rock Candy Mountain, the island of cocaine, where people People just kind of get to hang out. And these dreams were based on exploiting new frontiers. These dreams of endless cornucopias were based on people moving out to places where the environment had not yet been extensively farmed. And as we know, this relentless expansion had to end. It exhausted the soil in the south where cotton was grown for British mills. Desire for beaver hats decimated the populations of North American beavers so that now, we you know, I've never seen a beaver in the wild. Uh, 
And it also destroyed local landscapes and changed the cultures of the Native American populations who hunted the beavers. But on the other hand, these images of utopias of endless food were real. There were actually utopian islands that British working class people could go to and set up uh, societies in which they didn't have to work as hard. Think of Bosrup. This is people trying to go to places where they could shift down the intensity of their labor because the environment had not yet been put under as much pressure. But this story is troubling. If the liberty of the settler frontier, like places like America, is based on a frontier that's no longer around, what do we do in a modern world where resources are more constrained? Can we continue to do the same thing that uh, Western society has done for 200 years of exploiting environment over and over again without state control so that people can have high rates of consumption and personal liberty so that we can all live in our own personal big rock candy mountains? Or do we need to take the Japanese route of hard work, state control, and minimal consumption? Now this might seem a little bit academic, but we are facing an end to all frontiers soon. The economy that we live in today is based off of coal and oil and natural gas. And we know that in some time, and maybe even soon, maybe even in my lifetime, these resources will run out. And at that time, we will no longer have a frontier to expand into. We will no longer have free energy. We will no longer be able to subsidize our leisure by uh, 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 exploiting the environment. And what happens then? Thanks very much for listening. Uh, I have to thank Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and share us on social media. It really, really, really does help. Uh, check out the webpage at historian.live. And if you like the show or have a comment or a question, send me an email or get in touch with me through one of the many uh, uh, ways that you can get in touch with people right now. I will see you guys tomorrow. I hope you have a great day.